Thank you for your good singing today. Let's open our Bibles today, please, to the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 14. Last week we talked to you from John 19 and 20. We're going to regress a little bit today. Put it in reverse. Jesus here in John chapter 14 is... uh, giving his farewell address to his disciples. The first part of the book of John, chapter 1 through chapter 12, is the story of the rejection of the nation of Israel. Um, Jesus came unto his own, the Bible says, but his own received him not. The next part here in uh, verse number 13, or chapter 13 through chapter 17, is the story of the people who did receive him, his disciples. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him. Them gave he the authority to become the children of God. I'd like to ask you to look at your notes that you received when you came in in your courier and follow along there. Today we're talking to you about where is God in my world. I'm sure that every one of us, many, many times in our life, ask ourselves this question. We look at other people and we think, boy, they're really doing great spiritually. Uh, They're on top of their game. Uh, They talk about God. They see God working in their life. But, boy, I'll tell you what, it's uh, I don't have that experience in my life. Where is God in my world? Well, the disciples were starting to say that about this time in the ministry of Christ. Because Jesus was getting ready, kind of breaking up the ground to get ready to depart from them. And they thought that they had found God in their world. And they were living their dream. They really were. And they were getting ready, especially on Good Friday, to ask this question. Where is God in my world? Let's begin reading in verse number 1 of John 14. Jesus here is trying to build his disciples up, give them courage to face the blackness of the future. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Listen, this thing that's tearing you up on the inside, you've got to stop it. You can't live like that. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Jesus takes their focus from the circumstances that they're looking at to the reality of the future. And he says, listen, I want you to think about your eternal home, the Father's house. I love that term for heaven, the Father's house. Uh, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. You know, they had picked up uh, certain statements that Jesus made about him as departing. But here he says the reason for his departure. He said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I've got something to do on the other side. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'm sure they picked up on that because... The thing they wanted most of all was the presence of the Lord in their life. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's exactly what they wanted. And so this should have, like, bolstered their faith. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. The Greek word here for way is hodos, which means highway. Remember that old television program, The Highway to Heaven? I don't know whether they got that here or not. But Jesus said, I'm going away, and you know the highway, the way you know. 
Thomas said to him, I like Thomas. He always is a little bit provocative. He says, Lord, we do not know where you, you're going and how can we know the way? I'm sure that some of the other disciples says, Thomas, weren't you paying attention? You know, people back in that day had selective hearing just like we do. You know, that we hear what we want to hear, don't we? How many times have you said to someone else, didn't you hear that? Oh, that person said that a dozen times. No, I didn't hear that. Well, Thomas, it's like his head's in a cloud. We do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's probably one of the first statements that the early disciples learned to memorize right here. I am the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except he come through me. I know that you know that the early church was known as people of the way. And I'm sure that they characterized the church that way because the disciples were always saying, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. They just keep repeating it all the time. And so, therefore, they became noted as people of the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except he comes through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Now, this is interesting. And this gets really deep here, and I, uh, it's, it's amazing, these next few verses. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's... A, it is sufficient for us. How many times have people down through the years said, if I could just see God once, Lord, if you just like visualize yourself in front of me, I'd be like, I wouldn't ask anything uh, of you. other. That'd be the end. That'd be the ultimate. If I could just see you. That's always been the desire of people's hearts to see God. And Philip said, listen, Lord, if, if we could just see the Father, that would, we'd be so happy. That would help us. And Jesus said, look at this. Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, this is a deep truth right here. Jesus said, listen, you've seen me do all these miracles, and you've been with me. You've seen the Father through me. So how can you say, show us the Father? Uh, Jesus was kind of taken back that, he, that they hadn't picked up on this earlier. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Wow, isn't that provocative? Jesus said, listen, you know, we have this idea. We believe in the Trinity. I know you do. God the Father, God the Son, and what? God the Holy Spirit. And we kind of look at it in that dimension. God the Father is way out there in outer space somewhere. God the Son walked across the earth, and God the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is in my heart. And so we look at God the Father as, as some person way out in outer space and Jesus said listen I'm in the father and the father is in me you know whenever I think about that I think of that Christmas verse that we always pull out for Christmas Isaiah 9 6 remember what it says for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor the mighty God the everlasting father that's interesting. I know you've quoted that verse many times, and, I, and if you've been like me, you've kind of passed that right by. But that's a prophecy of Jesus. And that verse says that Jesus is the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we have this Father-Son thing like this. 
And Jesus said, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father. Now look at this. The Father who dwells in me. God the Father dwells in God the Son. Now, he says if your faith is not that big, and that's, that's big faith right there to really absorb that truth. He said, I want you to believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of my works. If your faith is not quite that high, just believe in me because of all the mighty miracles that you've seen me produce in the world. And they saw many, many mighty miracles. He said, isn't that good enough for you to place your faith in me? Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Now, the greater works that he refers to here for his disciples is not, of course, greater in quality. No one could ever outshine the majesty of the Lord. No one could ever produce what he could produce. There's no one in that category. But he refers here not to quality, but to quantity. Greater works, more works. Jesus' ministry was limited to that little geographic area over there we call the Middle East or, or Israel, uh, that, that small piece of property. But Jesus here is referring to the church. Whenever the church takes the message out, there's going to be blessing and healing all around the world. Greater works, greater in number. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in my Son. I've underlined the second portion of that because that's important. Jesus said here to his disciples, you're going to learn to pray to me. But I want you to realize that when you pray, uh, I want to answer your prayer so it brings glory to the Father in the Son. And so to me, that is a condition of prayer. Uh, if what we pray about brings glory to God in his Son, then the Lord says, listen, I'm interested in answering that prayer. And then he says in verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so he said, listen, I want you to get ready to learn to pray. And then in verse 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then in 16, he says, I will pray to the Father. And so he says, here, we're praying and Jesus is praying. And he says, I'm going to pray to the Father and he's going to give you another helper or comforter that he will abide with you for what? Forever. The spirit of truth, that's his name whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him that he dwells with you and will be what? In you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus here is trying to build up the faith of his disciples. Uh, on Good Friday, they're going to ask themselves, where is God in our world? Uh, they just knew that Jesus was God. Because remember, John, who wrote the, Bible, the book of John here, said in, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. And then remember when Jesus popped the question to the disciples in Matthew 16, up by Caesarea Philippi, he backed off and he said, listen, fellas, I just want to know who you think I am. And Peter spoke up as normal. And he says, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, listen, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. God has revealed this to you. 
And so these disciples were leaning heavily in the direction to know that Jesus was God in their world. But here the Lord was trying to get them prepared for his exit away from them. They had such comfort and such strength in his presence. Let's go back to the first verse and look at it more carefully. In the first verse, I think Jesus is asking them to trust him. You know, there are times in our life that that you can't figure it out by logic. Faith is a big part of living the Christian life. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so that's what he's asking them right here. Trust me. And this verse number one actually is a series of three commands. Not just statements, but three commands. And they are these. First of all, he says this. Stop letting your heart be troubled. Now, the word troubled here is an interesting word, and it's a word that Jesus understood very vividly because in John eleven thirty three, it's the same word that is referred to Christ. Whenever Jesus came to the funeral service of his friend Lazarus and he saw Mary weeping, the Bible says he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And so Jesus knew the pain that these disciples, that were, they were experiencing right now. And he says, listen, you've got to stop this. You know, it's good to have somebody kind of step up and say, hey, listen, come to your senses here. Don't keep troubling yourself. Don't keep torturing yourself with this thing. That's what he says. This is a command right here. Then the next command is this. Keep on believing in God. These are imperative statements in the Greek New Testament. Keep on believing in God. Now, that was pretty easy because God's image was not very tarnished. You know, when you go back and read the Old Testament, boy, the the Jews' view of God was astounding. It really was. First Chronicles seventeen twenty says, O Lord, there is none like you, neither is there any God beside you. All the gods of the nations are idols, but you created the world. Wow. I mean, their view of God was stupendous. It really was. And they learned from little children to have such strong faith in the true God. And how did they learn it? Well, they learned it the same way that you and I learn it, sometimes by the Proverbs. We have, uh, uh, we have a scripture, Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Let's read it together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. Boy, just think of teaching our children that verse from their infancy. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. These disciples were people that had this born in them. Uh, They were people that knew this information. They had such esteem for God Almighty. And so when Jesus said to his disciples, keep on believing in God, they probably thought, man, we can do that. Because he's never been in doubt in our mind. But then he goes on to something harder. Look at the next statement. Keep on believing in me. Now, this was going to be harder for them to do because 
their vision of the Messiah was evaporating right in their eyes, right before their eyes. They had dreams of conquest. They really did. They thought Jesus was going to take that sword out and lead them like Peter tried to lead them with a sword. But uh, he kept talking about dying. And so they and what he was saying to them is, even though you see the circumstances that are unfolding, I want you to keep believing in me. Wow. That's real faith. Faith is believing in God despite the circumstances. It really is. What is faith? Faith is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. And so Jesus put all three of these statements together in this package And he's looking at his disciples, and this is what he's saying. Trust me. In spite of the circumstances, trust me. Have you ever ever said that to a friend of yours? You know, the situation is like chaotic, and, and they're about to make some crazy decision. And you get right up in their face, and you say, look at me. Have you ever done that to anybody without getting punched? Look at me. Look in my eyes. And you began to spend some capital, and you said, trust me on this. And they thought, okay, I'll do that. And the reason why they probably thought that they would do that is because of your impact in their life and your history. If you didn't have any credibility, you couldn't get up in front of somebody's face and say, trust me. But if you were solid, trustworthy, And uh, there was a situation that was out of control, and they said, listen, you trust me on this. That's what Jesus was asking his disciples to do. Just trust me. You've seen my miracles. You've seen me. You know me. You know who I am. We've walked together for a few years now. Trust me on this one. Okay? Then he says, I'm leaving, but I'll be back. Look at verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I've underlined that. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Where is he going? He's going to the Father's house, the heavenly home. And he's going to make mansions there. You know, whenever we think about mansions, I know we all have pictures in our mind. If you just drive out here in the country, not very far, you would drive down some of these country roads and you look up on the hill and you say, whoa, man, that, that house could like hold six families. I bet Jesus is making me one of them. You know, because we've had this verse for a long time and, you know, we all have our conception. Well, I'm going to kind of like blow your, uh, bust your bubble this morning. Is it okay if I do that? This word mansion here, is actually a Latin word that was brought over from the Latin translation. The Latin Bible was the Bible that was used for a thousand years in the church. And so many of the words that we have in English come from Greek and Latin. This is a Latin word, and it didn't mean like the big house out in the country. It meant simply dwelling. And some of your Bibles have it translated like that. It means to remain in a dwelling. That's what it means. Write that in the margin somewhere. In my Father's house are many dwellings, and you're going to remain there. This is going to be your last address. You know, I meet people all the time. They move all over the country, you know, and 
and sometimes we have to. You know, they get a job transfer. And I, I meet sometimes military people. They've been in the Air Force, the Marines, the Army. And uh, I'll say, well, one of my favorite questions, oh, where, where are you originally from? And they look at you with this, do you really want to know? And then they begin to go down. Well, I was in Georgia for a while. I lived in Texas. I was in New York. I'm in Wyoming. I'm in California. Where do you want me to be from? I'm from anywhere you want. They've moved all over the place. Now, there are other people like me. Basically, I've been from here. How many people in our church through the years, basically, you've been from western Pennsylvania? Would you raise your hand? Whoa, you're a bunch of homesteaders here. Man. Now, that's not true in some places. Boy, some places, I mean, they just, it's just like moving all the time all over the place. Well, this verse says, there is a heavenly home. It's your last address. This is our forwarding address right here. It's called the Father's house. And he's making there many dwelling places for us. Uh, I'll be back. What does that mean? Well, for sure, it means that uh, the Lord will be back in just a few days. Because remember, he died on Good Friday. And then on Easter Sunday, he wasn't gone very long. Remember last week's message? I'm not finished. I'm coming back. And so it means for sure that he's coming back on the resurrection day. Some Bible scholars think that this refers primarily to the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is coming and it refers to Pentecost. And I'll tell you the reason why. I have three verses here to give you if you'd like to write them down, the reference. Romans 8, 9 says this. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit comes, it means that Jesus comes. Remember this? Now we have Jesus and the Spirit like we had Jesus and the Father just a minute ago. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, the Bible calls Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, capital S. 1 Peter 1.11 also says the same thing. There is a spirit of Christ. And so when Jesus said he's coming back again, could that mean that that was on the day of Pentecost, the spirit of Christ? It could. Most Bible scholars, though, are in agreement that this refers to the rapture, the rapture of the church. You've heard about it. The trumpet will sound and the dead should be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. You've heard about that. The rapture of the church. One of these days, I believe for sure the church is going to be taken off the face of the earth. And you know, the press loves, as you know, to bash the church. Every little thing that happens in any little church makes headlines. Uh, but, and oftentimes many people's faith is discouraged with the church. But the church around the world is having wonderful impact on the world. And can you imagine today a world without the church? The church is the body of Christ on earth. The church is the hands of Christ. The church is the heart of Christ. The church is the mouth of Christ. Can you imagine what our world would be without the church? It would be one ugly, ugly place. But one of these days, God is going to harvest the people of God, 
off of this earth and the church is going to be gone. And I'd like to show you that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you'll leaf over there, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to the right from where you are. And we just want to say a few words this morning about the rapture. Paul is explaining it. Jesus said, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. There's not a lot of detail there. But Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 gives us detail in verse 13. He said, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The word fallen asleep there was the term that they used back in their day for people who died. It's a euphemism. In our day, we, we, we use this term, but we often use they passed away. That sounds a little bit easier. Then the person died. And so Jesus used this term when he came to the funeral of Lazarus. Remember, they, he said, Lazarus is asleep. And so here Paul is talking about uh, Christians who die in the Lord. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The world was hopeless before Christ and the resurrection. People were terrified of death. But after the resurrection, that terror did not linger in the hearts of people any longer who believed. For if we believe that Jesus died, and actually it's since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. What he's talking about here is the resurrection. Now, many people believe that when a person dies, their soul kind of goes into animation, some suspended animation. Uh, They call it soul sleep. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, this, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And so with that, we believe that. We believe the very moment that that you die, whether it's in your heart or in your mind or wherever that that last final second is, uh, you are ushered into the presence of the Lord. But you leave the body behind, and that's not a bad thing to leave behind. Because God's going to give us a new body. Can we have a few amens? Ooh, okay. Okay. Uh, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain shall be unto the coming of the Lord will by no means perceive those who are asleep. He's talking about the resurrection here of the dead. And he says those of us who are alive and remain when the trumpet sounds are not going to precede those who are asleep in the ground. Uh, They're going to arise first. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, why, why is that? Well, the reason why is because they have farther to go than we do. Six more feet, that is, or however far down they are. And so we have to give them time to catch up. Because the Bible says that when they catch up, we're all going to be raptured together with the Lord. And so what happens is the resurrection and the rapture turns into the reunion whenever the trumpet blows. Man. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. They're the first ones to come up. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. You see the word caught up there? It's a very interesting word. It means to be, to be robbed, to be seized by force. 
And so when the Lord comes back, he's going to take his believers off the earth by force. And I don't know exactly what kind of message this is sending to us, but whenever I think of this, I think of Lot in the Old Testament. Remember him? He was a pitiful character, he really was. The Bible says that he wanted to settle down in in Sodom, and whenever Lot moved into Sodom, Sodom moved into Lot. And uh, he struggled with this whole thing. His righteous soul, the Bible says, was, was troubled all the time. Can you imagine a follower of God living in Sodom and Gomorrah? That's hard to imagine. And so finally, the, the fumes of Sodom and Gomorrah, the stench of Sodom and Gomorrah rose up to God. And God says, okay, that's it. I'm pulling the plug. I'm wiping that place out. They're so evil. But before I do that, I'm going to send a messenger to, to rescue Lot because he does believe in me. He doesn't have a testimony, but he still believes in me. So I'm going to rescue him. And uh, the scripture says they went down there and literally drug him out of Sodom before the end came. And I think that may be uh, a similar situation that will happen at the rapture. I think that there are Christians in our world today that are so in love with the world that whenever they hear the trumpet and the voice, they might think, well, you know, I'm just not ready to go right now. I have plans and I have dreams and I'm so in love with this world. Uh, But the Bible says the Lord here is going to take them forcibly by force before this tremendous destruction comes upon the face of the earth that is described in the book of Revelation. God loves his church too much to let them linger in Sodom. He's going to take them away. I want to encourage you today, and I encourage myself this way, to not be so infatuated and in love with the world because the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he that does the will of God remains forever. John said this, love not the world, neither the things, 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 things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he that does the will of God, remains forever. You know, we spend so much of time of our life trying to accumulate things of the world and love those things. And when it's all said and done, we cannot take one of those things with us into the future. I was just thinking about my mother. She's, as you know, almost 98 years old. She has three drawers at the nursing home. And a little place to hang a few dresses. That's what she has left to the things of this world. And I have news for you. That's what you'll have left. Three drawers. A little closet. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. But she's got the greatest thing in all the world. She has a future with the Lord. She will remain forever. She was just telling me. A day or so ago, she said, Johnny, I think more of my mother now than I ever thought of her in my life. 
What do you think about when you get 98? You, th you think about your mother. Well, I'll tell you what, when the rapture takes place, her mother is coming out of the ground. And her daughter, side by side, will rise to be with the Lord forever. Won't that be a glorious thing? And so uh, here, the, here is, uh, the Lord says, I'm coming back. And people always say, well, why hasn't God come back? You know, why is it? It's been 2,000 years since he, he made that prediction. Why hasn't he come back? Uh, I, I think there are probably three or four good answers, and we don't have time for all of that, but I'll give you one that you can think about. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He said, The Lord here is not slack concerning his promise to return, as some people think, but is long-suffering to us who are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I say this with humility. I think that God is reluctant to pull the trigger because he looks down at our world of billions of people and he has compassion on them and he's waiting for some more of them to be saved. That's what that verse seems to say to me. He's not willing that any single person should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And maybe the Lord looks down and maybe he says, you know, there's still a whole lot of people that need me in this big giant world that, that has transpired and I'm just going to wait a little bit longer because there are some Christians praying from other, for other people. They'll come to Christ and I don't want to pull the trigger right now on them because I want their loved ones to be ready. He said, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. And then just one other thing, and we'll go back to John chapter 14. Uh, and uh, we want to look at verse number 16. And I will pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper or comforter that he may abide with you forever. He said, I'm going to pray to the Father to give you another comforter. There are two words in the original language for another. One is alos. And that means another of the same kind. The other word is heteros, and that means another of a different kind. Jesus uses the word alos here, and he says, I'm going to send you another helper, comforter like me, of the same kind. And so whenever the Holy Spirit comes, there's not going to be any diminishment. Is that a word? Any diminishment in what you have. Another like me, the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be for, with you forever. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 says this. Let's, let's look at it. Let's read it together. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Where is God in my world? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is in your heart, in the person of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God. That means that you don't have to come to church to find God. That means that you don't have to be in a particular group to meet with God. He is as close to you as your very breath. 
That's where God is in your world. And sometimes we, we, we miss that. We forget about that. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here is a helper who will be with us forever. Uh, where is God in my world? If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he has sent to you the Spirit of Christ in your heart. And so it's right to say, either or, I have the Holy Spirit or I have Christ in my heart. Because the Holy Spirit and Christ are like this. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed today, the Bible does say in Romans 8 9, he that does not have the Spirit is none of his. Uh, the mark of a true believer is the life of the Spirit of God in our heart. I'd like to ask you to reappreciate today the Holy Spirit in your heart. When you go to work uh, Monday, uh, and you're sitting there at the desk or whatever kind of a job you have, I want you to be conscious that God is with you. Years ago, we used to teach people that we can have divine appointments. You know, God will set up an appointment. Something tremendous will happen. And I think that's true, but in recent years, I've been thinking that everything is a divine appointment when you're a Christian. When you drive down the road, that's an appointment. When you stop your car, that's an appointment. When you go grocery shopping and stand in the line, that's an appointment. It's an opportunity for you to live out the life of Christ. And the reason why I say that is because God is with you in every situation. Let's thank the Lord in our heart for that today. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are with us and we pray for, we pray for those that do not have the Holy Spirit in their heart today. I pray that they may come to the knowledge of the truth that they may receive you as their Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we sing to the Lord. And as we sing to the Lord, I'd like to invite you to come and pray at the altar if you feel led, if there's somebody you'd like to pray for. Maybe there's something going on in your life you'd like to pray about. Just step out and come and pray as we sing to the Lord.